Hi, my name is Evan, and I use he, him pronouns. And my name's Ian, and I use they, them pronouns. And this is If the Shoe Fits, a podcast about Cinderella's, from those that dance to those that just stand still. <laughs> Today, we have a dancing Cinderella. Very dancing Cinderella. Barely dancing, not our danciest Not our danciest, but, but a dancy Cinderella. Right, right, right. Uh, in Leslie Caron's The Glass Slipper, Ooh. 1955. Ooh. I'll jump right into our fast facts. This is a movie musical with dance elements made by MGM, very much in the swing of the studio system mm-hmm. moment. Although we're getting near the end of the studio system for mm-hmm. sure. But the background info about this has a lot of like, this actor was pulled off of this project and this person did it because they were already under contract and that kind of thing going on. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting that this is part of the end of that. Um, it follows a film that came out two years earlier called Lily, which had the same star and book writer or a screenwriter, I guess you'd call it, which was a huge success. Also movie musical, also starring Leslie Caron, also with some dance sequences. And this film was not a huge success. Right. On a budget of just under two million, the box office was nearly three million, but the studio estimates that they lost around $387,000. Which for the time, that's a lot of money. Right. I mean, in 2016, that would have been three and a half million. Right. Helen Deutsch wrote the screenplay, and I thought this quote from her was interesting. She says, MGM gave me one word, Cinderella. That's how it started. I read practically everything I've written about this famous waif, rejection, most conceptions of the character. Actually, my Cinderella of the 18th century is not based definitively on anyone else's ideas but my own. Waves have intrigued the reading public for generations. There are popular characters in the early movies. Then gave way to more worldly females. I first revived the wave successfully in Lily. Which, which is, is the other Leslie Caron movie. the other Leslie Caron movie. She's also responding there to the question of whether the script is based on the work of other writers. Because MGM had purchased uh, the rights to a theatrical adaptation, also called The Glass Slipper, before they made this movie. But the writers of that were not credited in this movie. Mm. So what do you think of our... Of our central waif. Because it is an interesting take on the character. It's definitely an interesting take on the character. Should I do a nice little summary? Oh, right. That's how we do things here. You're a quick synopsis. Yeah. I can time you. Okay, so we have a minute on the clock. Okay. Go. Alrighty, so we start in this lovely, lovely, lovely little town. Forget the name of it, but it's a lovely town. And they're setting up for the prince to arrive. Like, they're putting up, like, decorations and everything. And Leslie Caron comes out as Ella, and she's all dirty and stuff. And uh, she's kind of like the... Uh, uh, the outcast, you know, nobody really likes her. Nobody really talks to her. Um, they think she's dirty and ugly and treat her like like everybody treats her like crap 30 seconds so uh she runs away she meets a nice old lady uh uh a lot of a lot of pouting and stamping of the foot happens she meets the prince doesn't know he's the prince he says he's the prince's cook uh she gets an invitation to the ball she goes to the ball wearing clothes that was stolen and uh she meets the prince there finds out he's the prince then runs away and then uh bing bang boom a regular cinderella story <laughs> okay <laughs> there was a while in there where i was like i know i watched this with you but i feel like you didn't watch this movie <laughs> I did watch this movie. I, know, I swear. I, I saw you watch this movie. <laughs> so there's a couple things there. Um, but that's the main gist of it. Cinderella's a very pouty lady. Very pouty. 
she thinks that the prince is the son of the cook at the palace for most of the movie. Mm-hmm. I think one of the big things we missed is that that her mother received a prophecy right before she was born. I forgot about the prophecy. <laughs> which is that someday her daughter would live in the palace. Mm-hmm. And she tells everyone all the time that she's going to live in the palace someday, which is one of the reasons they don't like her, it seems like. <laughs> I think that Helen Deutsch, the screenwriter, was trying to get at like a like an emotional truth that like if Cinderella is treated so poorly and by her stepfamily and by the, her community that she would be kind of pouty and difficult. And like, I think the narrator even describes it as a cycle at the beginning that she becomes more pouty because she's being treated poorly. And then she's treated more poorly because she's so difficult, mm-hmm. which is interesting, especially in a film that doesn't seem to have a lot of other psychological truths on its mind. Right. <laughs> Cause it's still a very silly romantic story, but interesting to see a Cinderella that isn't like, I mean, the second in a row, right. Who, isn't perfect and good and obliging all the time. Another bad Cinderella. Another bad Cinderella. This is the basis for the Angel of Ever. This is the basis. We found it. It's a very loose adaptation of the 1955 film. I was wondering going into it, since it is a 1955 film, if there would be any influence from the Disney movie. Mm. And I don't think so much. Maybe in some of the clothes. Maybe in some of the clothes. But even then, like it, it seems... Like, the Disney movie is the Disney movie, taking on the Disney aesthetic and such. This seems more, like, grounded in some sort of reality. A mixture of 50s meets the period that they're trying to convey. Leslie Caron Cinderella, or Ella, which is mm-hmm. her name, has this short tomboyish cut, as it's described, mm. which apparently she did herself, and right. MGM executives were not happy about. The character had this line early on, where she's talking to the fairy godmother. We meet the fairy godmother early. And she's like, I was mad at everything and I hated myself and I cut my hair and now I feel better. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is interesting. And her hair is short the entire film. It's, I think it's our only short-haired Cinderella. Yeah. And this is proof that cutting your hair or doing something to your hair does help you feel better. Mm-hmm. For a moment. <laughs> Briefly. Momentarily. <laughs> I do want to say about this Cinderella, the, the difference between, because you talked about Leslie Caron Cinderella and our last Cinderella, I think the difference between them is that the last Cinderella at least had witty comebacks. Oh, yeah. Like, I- held up her own and was, like, able to, like, talk back mm-hmm. to them. This one just... Leslie Caron, wonderful actress, beautiful, wonderful dancer as well. But I, I don't know if the writing really, like... I mean, she comes off as, like, a 10-year-old. Like, it's, yeah. it's sort of, like adult woman it like cinderfella where it's like just kind of childish the whole time where she like gets mad and storms off and like lies about things that don't matter and mm-hmm. yeah it's odd and i i it's interesting because what the prince sees in her is pretty clearly spelled out is that she's sad <laughs> he's like i can't resist sad girls well also because when he was little he oh he saw her he saw her well see, see anyway it's never confirmed but he's like i saw this girl running out of a house screaming and crying she couldn't have been more than five uh well my carriage is waiting to possess through town mm-hmm. those eyes caught my attention and then and he, i remember those eyes since and we are to infer that those eyes were cinderella's right because he's immediately taken with her when he sees her because he goes down to her upon arriving back in town he goes to her favorite like water hole mm-hmm. where she goes to swim Mm-hmm. and runs into her, and she pushes him into the pond. Yes. Because she thinks he's making fun of her. I also want to say, 
about this Cinderella. The premise of the name Cinderella is that she is like dirty from working in the ashes and soot. Mm-hmm. This is the first time where we've actually had, <laughs> oh, maybe the second time that we've actually had her be dirty. Like she is. The first time is ever after. I think the first time is ever after. <laughs> and then she's just like, in this one, she's just got a lot of soot on her for the first, I don't know, half hour of the movie. Probably. Right. And we actually like to see her, like see her in dirt. Mm-hmm. Getting dirty. Yeah. Yeah, there's an interesting balance because she, like, clearly is shown to do stuff for the family, but also she also spends a lot of time doing her own thing, like going off to the watering hole and... Anytime they make her mad, she just runs away. Totally. And it doesn't seem to have any, like, consequences. No. There's also no sense of injustice to it. There's no, like, this should have been my house and my father's money or whatever. There's none of that going on. She just seems to have totally accepted that this is her place in life to work for the step family and not quite be their family. I think this is the first step family that doesn't feel like a present or threat. Mm -hmm. Like I think this is the first time where you can literally take out the step family completely in, in the Cinderella adaptation, which is very odd. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of the like things that they do narratively just don't matter. Like they barely tell her she can't go to the ball they see her the ball, but it doesn't really come to anything. They don't really completely realize it's her. You know, they're not trying to keep her from doing anything, really. Mm-hmm. If she had been like a simple woman the town didn't like who lived alone, it would have been the same story. Totally, totally. And maybe like the stepsisters could be like these two like pretty girls of the town mm-hmm. instead. Yeah. Like that, I, I think that would have been more compelling than what we got. I don't know if they could have made a movie about an independent woman in 1955. I'm not sure. I mean, they could have justified it as a fairy tale. Right. Especially because she's like looked down on and her happy ending is ending up as not a, a non-independent right. woman. So right. maybe maybe that would have worked after Probably all. Probably would have. Leslie Cronin is just so interesting in this movie. What weird faces she makes. <laughs> they do this thing. There's a couple dream sequences and they do this thing every time where they like zoom in like way too close to some bizarre face she's making. Mm-hmm. But, like, she is a good actress, and I can see why she's so captivating. I just don't think this was her shining movie. I'm I'm willing to give another movie of hers a try, but... It's interesting because the moral of the original story is sort of, like, be good to people and be patient and Mm -hmm. good things will come to you. And this one is sort of more like Cinderella, which came out five years later, in that it's sort of like... Sometimes idiots luck into nice situations. Right. You know, I don't know that that she's that deserving necessarily. Not that I begrudge her her happy ending, obviously. No. Because it's sweet and it's cute. And as the movie does progress, she does get like, like genuinely nicer. Mm -hmm. I think we realize that she is actually lonely, Mm -hmm. which is another comparison to Weber's Cinderella. But she's just so desperate to have a friend. And the first friend she makes in the movie is the village crazy lady, Mrs. Tokay, who is our fairy godmother. Yes. I like meeting the fairy godmother early. I like her being in and out of the movie uh, constantly like this because she shows up a number of times and is sweet but addled. Right. She keeps listing her favorite words while she's walking around. Mm-hmm. She's like, windowsill. Yes, windowsill is her favorite. Elbow. <laughs> Apple dumpling. <laughs> so she'll just like mutter those words to herself. Which is interesting, and I certainly wonder if it's a influence on the Broadway revival of the Rodgers and Hammerstein Cinderella, which has a crazy lady fairy godmother situation. Oh, maybe. I don't know. also the- like mutters things. Maybe this was the first one. Maybe. 
Although obviously both of them speak to a, a broader fairy tale trope of the right. wise old woman who isn't taken seriously. <laughs> What's interesting about Mrs. Tokay is that she is not magic. Or is she? Well, it seems like she's not magic for most of the movie. She seems aware of things, right? Like she... Mm-hmm. We are told by other characters that uh, Mrs. Tokay likes to steal a few things. and but, but that she always puts them back so no one minds very much, which right. is interesting. Which is we, why they tolerate her. We also do see her steal some Cinderella at one point. <laughs> After the ball, when she's like tucking her into bed, she like blows out the candle and then puts the candle in her sack. <laughs> Grabs a plate, walks away. So, like all of the um, the ball magic, which is when the fairy godmother usually does magic, is sort of explained away. Like the dress is from the step family's cousin, cousin Lulu, cousin Lulu, who is rich, right? Who is rich and who, and who is in and the movie, and there's not much more to say about it. But she's the reason why the family gets invited to the ball, right? Yes, which is also interesting. Also, it's not a king, it's just the duke. It's just right. the duke of their area and his son, who is the prince. Right. So it's Cousin Lulu's dress, and that causes a little bit of tension at the ball, with Cousin Lulu being like, I want to take a closer look at that dress. <laughs> and then the coach is just one of the coaches in town, and that's why she has to get home by midnight, because the ball ends at one. So they have to drop Cinderella back off at home so they can be back at the ball at one to pick up the the rich people who are paying to use the coach. Right. Which I think is terrific. I think that's a very smart way to solve that. But there's no, like, the dress is going to go away or any of those things. Well, she's on her way home and, like, they're rushing and they're rushing because they got to drop her off and get back to the rich people. You know, they got to... And I didn't think she lived that far away. The fact that they're, like, they have an hour to kill. I don't know why they (laughs) have to, like... Is it a half hour to the village? Maybe. Maybe. The prince certainly seems to go back and forth a lot. Who knows? But the, the carriage wrecks. And after the wreck happens, we see like a little uh, blur effect where... Oh, no, no, wait. Even better. First of all, there's this like shot of Cinderella lying on the ground and then it pans over and there's a pumpkin next to her. Mm-hmm. And then it cuts to her and waking up in bed. But also, if you notice, she's in her rags. Oh, is she? Yes, she's in her rags as well. I totally missed that. After the wreck. So the wreck happens and like it goes to Cinderella and she's in her rags and by a pumpkin and mice. and Oh, yeah. So it's kind of to infer that this is magic. It's hinted at. You know, I, that makes something else make sense to me, which is that during the movie, Mrs. Tokay shows up the night of the ball and Cinderella's like, I'm sitting here eating my grilled cheese or cheese and bread. And... Mrs. Tokay's like, no, you have to go to the ball. And Cinderella has just fed like a scrap of cheese to a mouse. And I was like, oh, there's mice. So there's going to be magic. Uh-huh. And then we don't see the mice again. And we do see and the footman just show up. Yeah. But I love the idea that Mrs. Tokay was doing magic behind the scenes the whole time. Mm-hmm. And I missed it. <laughs> there is a more explicit piece of magic at the very end, which is that uh, there's narration. And at the end, the narration is like, and Mrs. Tokay went back to wherever it was she came from. And then she just like fades out of existence. <laughs> The good old 50s fade. Yeah. So yeah, she is a little bit magic, but she's just a little, I don't know, she's more hidden about it. Mm-hmm. It's more subtle. Yeah. You know, there's no bibbidi-bobbidi-boo or impossible, you know, just, no. here's these things. Right. She's like, we have to go back at the backyard. And Ella's like, why? And she's like, that's where I left it. And the, the dress is hanging there. Yeah. And she's also just willing to lie about things, obviously, like willing mm-hmm. to lie that she has magic. She's like, oh, I just took the dress or, oh, mm-hmm. I just paid these guys. Right, right. She's delightful. She has the funniest lines in the movie. She's very funny. Should we talk about the dance slash dream sequences? Yeah, we hinted at them earlier. This movie is, I think, more known 
for these dance slash dream sequences. And you can tell that a lot of the time went into those more. Because, I mean, Leslie Caron is a trained ballet dancer. So, of course, they were going to show off her talents. And we get we get three of them. We get one where she doesn't dance. She's just sitting on a throne in a nice dress. But this is very funny because she tells Mrs. Tokay that she wants to live at the palace. Uh, she's going to live at the palace, rather. And Mrs. Tokay says, well, what will you do there? And then she's, like, digging up potatoes in the backyard of the house. And the, like, thought comes back to her. Like, what will you do at the palace? Then we hear the audio again. Then she makes a weird face. And she makes a weird face and it zooms in. And then she imagines herself sitting on a throne and she like kind of explores she like gets up and she like bats at the tassels around her like a cat and then <laughs> like she just she has no idea what she would do in the palace mm. and it like cuts back to the throne again and she's like sitting there i think i have it backwards actually sitting first and then batting at tassels the second time yeah which is very funny yeah it's really really funny it's a very slow-paced joke it's the sort of joke <laughs> i think you couldn't tell in a movie today then we get to the second dream sequence which is her yes well and and i noticed this in the movie is that between the first and second dream sequences the prince who she still thinks is the palace cook's son teaches her how to dance mm, yes you he's did. like well he's like here's your invitation to the ball i got it as a gift from the prince and if you're at the ball, you're going to need to dance. And she's like, I don't know how to dance, which is wild because, of course, she is a trained ballet dancer and he didn't know how to dance for the movie and they had to train him. But he teaches her how to dance. And then in the next dream sequence, she's dancing and everybody around her is dancing. Right. And it's like a kitchen scene. The prince who is dressed up as a cook. And it it's really cute and uh, very of the time. Yes. Well, it reminded me a lot of the dream sequence in the movie musical Oklahoma, which I think came out the same year. Yes, it did come out the same year. But it's got that, if you're familiar, it's got that same sort of like giant backdrop of a vague abstract colorscape thing and like things floating in midair go- thing going on. And it's a longish sequence where she imagines like life in the kitchen and uh, life with the head cook. I think she's imagining that the prince will become promoted to head cook. Right. So there's some very goofy like action of him mm. putting in the like one last ingredient and everyone being impressed and bowing to him and him teaching her how to stir and then giving her a chef's hat because she's a chef now <laughs> so that's cute and then at the very end she like dances up to the top of and then down this like giant wedding cake mm-hmm. the last dance sequence oh yeah we have to explain some context here at the ball she dances with all the men mm-hmm. and she can't find the prince because he's in like a smaller receiving room and she doesn't say anything. No, she does not say a word, even when she's dancing with the Duke, who's like, I'm your host, who are you? But she won't say anything. She's just looking around trying to find the prince. Trying to find a, the door to the kitchen. Exactly. And finally she does dance with the prince, and everyone's like, who was that? Who, you know?" And someone, I think the prince's valet, starts a rumor that she, that was an Egyptian princess, mm-hmm. the Princess Tahara, they call her. Right. Because the valet knows who she is, who she actually is, and recognizes right. and her. And is trying to, I don't know, keep scandal away or something. And Well, you know that old trope of the, the royalty can't marry commoners. Well, well, and that comes up very briefly. The prince is like, what if I were to marry a commoner father? And he's like, well, you can't do it. It simply isn't done. And then he's like, 
but what about Princess Tahara? He's like, oh, the people would love it, you know, because he, he he realizes that, that that is a commoner. And, and he's like, well, to Princess Tahara. And at that moment, the head butler walks in and then gossip spreads, starting at the head butler. And it, word gets back to the step family. Leslie Caron, as Ella, overhears it and is like, oh, no, he's going to be married to this Princess Tahara, who I've never heard of, which fine. <laughs> and so she has this dream sequence, which is also dancey of like this conflict between the prince having to marry for political allegiance versus having to marry for love. And we get to see a princess Tahara. It's not Leslie Caron. Right. This is other woman played by Lillian Montevecchi, who would later go on to star in nine on Broadway. Mm -hmm. And Grand Hotel. And there's all these like quote unquote Egyptians who have blue skin and have like Trojan helmets. Right. So I don't know what's going on there. It's a nice little love duet. And then they're broken apart. And, Right, by the evil blue Egyptians. And then, like, Wiseman come and you were like, you have to marry. I mean, they're just pointing at books, but I'm assuming they were like, you have to marry royalty or whatever. And they, right. like, the prince and Tahara, like, very slowly walk out this giant door. Like they're in a production of Medea. And this is basically the end of the movie. Yeah, pretty much. She, I mean, there's a happy ending. She decides she's going to run away. She packs up a few belongings. She goes back to her old swimming spot. And there's the prince. Who would have thunk? Who would have guessed? And he asks her for help identifying who the shoe belongs to. She has a glass of the purse, of course. And it's like, he, this was Princess Tahara. Princess Tahara lost this shoe. Maybe you can help me find it. And she was like, she was like no, you're, you're going to marry someone else. She's very French. She says, no, no, you, you, it, it, is, it is my shoe. I am not Princess Tahara. There's no Princess. What? What? Right. You're going to marry Princess Tahara. And uh, they kiss, and the entire oui. the entire town is there for some reason, and they all like bow to her, and she puts on this cloak, and it's, that's the end of the movie. It's mm-hmm. cute. She goes, "Wee oui, wee, oui, I am French." <laughs> it's funny because the movie arguably is like set in France, but she's the only one with a French <laughs> accent. It's just her. It's just her. It's the Madame Giry effect. <laughs> so, as I'm sure you can probably tell, this movie does not have a lot of stakes in it. <laughs> I mean, that's the thing is like. The shoe thing happens in the, like, the funniest way. <laughs> he, she, like, throws it down or, like, gets surprised and, like, drops it. Well, she's the smartest of any Cinderella where she takes off the shoes and runs. Oh, yeah, she does take them off to run, which I think is good. Uh, which is why she's holding them in her hand and that's mm-hmm. how she loses And one. then she drops one. Yeah. I think the prince is like, wait, or whatever, but she just has to make the coach, of course. Right. But also, like, they meet early on. She tells him her name. He, like, asks around in town to find out who she is and what her deal is. Right. So, and and there's no pretense. Even writes a song about her. He does write a song about her, which is a very long, boring moment. But apparently they had to do it because the the original song in the movie Lily was such a huge success. (laughs) They're like, well, you have to have an original song. (sighs) I know. And then he comes clean at the ball about being the prince. So, like, they know who each other is. There's no secrets. And it's not like he'll never be able to find her again. Like, he knows her favorite spot to hang out. So when she runs away at the ball, there's no, like, oh, everything is lost. It's like, ah. You're just like, go to her house. Yeah, go home. You said you had to go home. I mean, and honestly, like, a part of me was like, you don't have to make it back to the um, coach. You can probably stay here. I bet he'd put you up. I bet he'd send you back. Totally. So, yeah, there's not a lot of, like, will they make it? Which is fine. It's cute still. But there wasn't a lot of, like, dramatic interest in the middle, for sure. (laughs) And frankly, that prophecy also ruins it. Because you know it's going to end happily. Yeah. You know it's going to end happily the whole time. But, you know, no one comes to a Cinderella for tragedy. No. Could a Cinderella end tragically? I don't think so. I mean, Cinder, I think, is the exception that proves the rule. Mm -hmm. But even Cinder is, like... She doesn't get the guy 
and she's in jail, but there's hope. And then like in the fullness of the rest of the series, she gets the guy. Like they do end up together eventually. Right. That's why whenever, every time you and I think of a like, could this be a Cinderella story? But the person dies at the end. I'm like, I don't think it's a Cinderella story. I don't think Cinderella can die at the end. Hmm. Well, there goes Moulin Rouge being a Cinderella story. <laughs> I think Christian would be the Cinderella in Moulin Rouge. Huh. Anyway, not that time. Not that time. <laughs> but um, would you recommend this movie to anybody? You know what? Even though we've said a lot about it, I still liked it. Hmm, it yeah. still has charm. It's a very charming, very quick movie. I thought this movie was going to be a lot longer because a lot of 50s movies are very long for some reason. Yeah, it flies by. It flew by so quick. Mm-hmm. I was like, wait, what? We're at the end? How did we get here? How did we get here? I think I would recommend it to fans of Lily. End of list. <laughs> I think, no, I'd recommend it to dance people for sure. I mean, oh, you yeah. see Leslie Caron and her... If you're fans of Audrey Hepburn, I know a lot of Audrey Hepburn fans like Leslie Caron, so this is a great movie for you. If you like Cinderella stories, this is a nice little cute Cinderella. Very, a little different, but still kind of holds the story. We just got done watching Shelley Duvall's fairy tale theater, her version of Cinderella. And it's good. <laughs> and it's good. It's Cinderella. It's Cinderella. It, yes. I mean, that, that is true. You do not need to synopsize it. It is the story straight across. <laughs> There's some lovely little touches and things like that in there. Right, right, right. You weren't familiar with fairy tale theater. No, right? I had no idea that Shelley Duvall had this show you will grow up watching this i did because i would rent the tapes at hollywood videos I would, wow yeah i would rent the tapes there some of my select favorites if you're interested uh we have the snow white and the seven dwarves with vanessa redgrave we also have the sleeping beauty with bernadette peters and christopher reeve there's also the jack and the beanstalk with gene stapleton and finally, The Hansel and Gretel with Joan Collins. That's a very good one. Those are my favorites. And you were telling me that Shelley Duvall produced the show and she would just get her friends involved? Yep. So these were all like actor friends of Shelley Duvall's? Yep. Literally, the first episode has Robin Williams. Wow. This was after The Shining, so she was very popular in Hollywood and by that point made a lot of Hollywood friends. So, of course, naturally, you know, you work with your friends sometimes and this is the perfect example of that. Right. And it was such a success that over the years, a lot of different 
actors or musicians would want to be in it. Do you know how many years it ran for? Uh, it ran from 1982 to 1987. Huh. Mm-hmm. So this is this is sort of in the middle of that. This is 1985. Yeah. Matthew Broderick stars as the prince. I think he's probably the most notable actor. I would say him and Jean Stapleton at the time, because she was in All All in the Family. Mm-hmm. Very popular sitcom. And she plays our, like, Southern Belle-style godmother. Mm-hmm, here. Mm-hmm. This is the second one that she's in. She was in Jack and the Beanstalk, and now she's the fairy godmother in this one. Her take on the fairy godmother is so fun, because it's so, like, like a fun wine-aunt kind of vibe. <laughs> Very much like, this is your grandmother who spoils you. Definitely. She just keeps telling, like, bad jokes. Mm-hmm. Which is sort of delightful. Yeah, so we have Jennifer Beals as Cinderella, Matthew Broderick as the prince, Jean Stapleton as the fairy godmother. Jean Stapleton steals this show. Hands down. Matthew Broderick is so young here. Mm-hmm. We had to look it up. It's a year before Ferris Bueller's Day Off. So right after he was done with Broadway. Also in this is Eve Arden, known for uh, silent movies in the past, but then transferred to the talkies and was the principal in Greece. Yes, as the evil... Stepmother, yeah. Stepmother, yeah. It's a very funny script. Very funny. It's it's jokey. It's um, The step family is, is playing that up well, I think. Mm. We basically start right with the death of Cinderella's father. They get noticed that he's died. Right. This stepmother, like, reassigns family chores, mm-hmm. but in this very, like, Cinderella, you'll do the washing, and my, I forgot the names, but my, my beautiful daughter, your job will be to sit there and look pretty. Basically, yeah. Yeah. And I will be in charge of being in charge. Right. There's a lot of that kind of, like, humorous language thing mm-hmm. going on, mm-hmm. especially stuff that plays on the, like, expectations of language of things set in an older time. Right. It's funny, the fairy tale theaters are either played completely straight or the funniest things ever. <laughs> there is no in between. Well, I'm glad they did this one funny. Because yes, it, I'm so glad they did it this works. one funny. But, and I will say, this is a strength, is that it, it's funny, but also, like, it's earnest. And mm-hmm. the emotions of it still land, I think. Definitely. Not that I was, like, shedding a tear or worried for the characters, but... You were invested. Yes. I took them at their word when they said they were sad or when, when they said they were worried or that kind of thing. One thing that I noticed about this is that when the fairy godmother shows up, she's like, us fairy godmothers are very particular. We only show up at certain times and, mm. and when we want to. It raises one of the like oldest questions about Cinderella, which is things have been going pretty bad for Cinderella for a while. Why is this the moment that the fairy godmother is interceding? And we don't really get that question answered very often, I think. No. But isn't that like a good parallel in life? Like things could be going so bad and then when you least expect it, like at your worst point, something good could happen and could really transform your life. That's how I always interpreted it. Like the force of the fairy godmother is a parallel for sometimes randomly good things happen to you. Yeah. I'd like to see a version that takes that to its natural conclusion and has things just happen by happenstance. Mm-hmm. So Noelle's like, I can't go to the ball. And then the neighbor is like, well, I, I, I have this broken leg and I can't go to the ball. Could you take my invitation? Do you want to go? I have this dress <laughs> that's your size. <laughs> I'd love to see a version where just like random things happen to go right for Cinderella. Right. I think that'd be fun. That'd be fun. And I wonder how we'd feel about that. Because I think one of the other common critiques of the Cinderella story is that things happen to Cinderella instead of Cinderella happening to things. Mm. And there's a moment in this one, because in this one, the prince throws a second ball to try to find her after she runs away after the first ball. She doesn't lose a shoe the first night. 
And there's a moment where it's the night of the second ball and she's at home and she's like, oh, fairy godmother, it's urgent now. I need your help again. And and she doesn't show up for a second. And then she does show up. But I was hoping for a second that Cinderella would have to like get herself to the ball and figure it out. Mm-hmm. And I'd love to see a version where she does. I would also love to see a version where she like makes her own dress, like actually like makes her own, without it getting ripped or something or getting a ink stain on it. <laughs> like in Camille Cabello. Yeah. This is another one where she is the one who makes the dress for the stepsisters too. Mm-hmm. So she has those skills. Right, right, right. There's also just something so charmingly 80s about it and so charmingly low budget about it. Oh yeah. I mean, it's not quite the same moment, but it, the production value felt very much like uh, Cinder Elmo to me. Mm-hmm. Like, I really kept expecting French Stewart to pop up and start acting like a dog. <laughs> the other thing that I think is really remarkable about this one that I like is that there's this very brief scene at the beginning, mm-hmm. before I think the ball is even announced, where there's a knock on the door <laughs> and there's a suitor for Cinderella. Right. A guy named Edgar. And the stepsisters answer. And he's like, hey, I went to school with Cinderella. And he has flowers. And he's like, I wanted, it's been so long. And I, I wanted, wanted to, to catch see, up. Wanted to catch up. Clearly a suitor. And the stepsisters are like, she died. <laughs> <laughs> and he like looks genuinely sad. He like takes his hat off. He's like, I'm so sorry for your loss. And like, we got over it. They slammed the door. But I love this idea of Cinderella having like other prospects and other potential suitors. Yeah, we never, we've never seen that. We've never seen that. Other suitors who seem like reasonable, good choices for her. I know that there are other versions that do have like another suitor, but like... But usually it's like, this is the terrible thing that will happen to you if you don't end up with the prince. This is If she found Edgar again, if Edgar happened to be at the ball, that seems like a perfectly reasonable happy ending that could be reached there. Yeah, He totally. seems like a good guy. I mean, he's not there very long. But the idea of... Or having other prospects is interesting also. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. This is also another Cinderella where she shows up at the ball and doesn't realize that she's been dancing with the prince. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. Yeah. Matthew Broderick is so interesting in this because like, he just doesn't seem like he knows what he's doing. Uh-huh. Like he was just like pushed onto set and was like, all right, now I'm say this. going to say the words, I guess. And it's so funny. It is. It is. He's got a sort of a charmingly awkward thing going on. So charmingly awkward. Both of them, honestly. Yes. This is the first Cinderella where I actually felt like, oh, they are like teenage age. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. how they're supposed to be. Yeah. Yeah, they, they do feel teenage age, don't they? There's one time where they're dancing and the king is like, shouldn't you introduce me? And he's like, we're dancing. Come back later. Which yeah. I like. Which Overall, like. Shelley Duvall. Yeah, it's cute. It hits. You did it. I think stronger than the glass slipper. I would wow. more, be, I'd be more likely to recommend Shirley Duvall's fairy tale theater than I would to recommend Leslie Caron's glass slipper. Can I say, it's just wonderful that we like all of Shelley Duvall's fairy tale theater is on YouTube now. So like, if you're interested, watch it. It's so cool to see well-established actors or up and coming that we know will be more well-established. Mm-hmm. Just do this fun fairy tale. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of charmingly low budget. I mean, there's like, there's basically two sets. It's the palace and the house where Cinderella's family lives. And they just like try to get as much variety out of that as possible. Mm -hmm. They do seem to have enough space for there to be like a coach, Mm -hmm. uh, quote unquote. There are live horses, though. There's live horses. Right. And then there's this like platform on wheels with like a sort of chair you might rent for your guests at a wedding. Yeah. Uh, on it and like fairy <laughs> lights so i mean they tried and it looks it's pretty good aside from the coach 
It's it's a lot of fun. I definitely recommend it. It is. Well, it's your turn for a pitch. Yes. And I've been planning for weeks. And that is why I am pitching you on why Moulin Rouge (laughs) is a Cinderella story. Okay. Tell me why. So, as stated before, I think that Christian is obviously a Cinderella character. Mm Mm-hmm. The ball is the Moulin Rouge, the first night at the Moulin Rouge. So that makes Toulouse-Lautrec his fairy godmother because he meets Toulouse-Lautrec and he transports him to the Moulin Rouge. And I'm not sure if he dresses him, but he definitely is like in nicer clothes when they get to the Moulin Rouge than he was before. Satine is his prince. Obviously. Obviously. And then we have a whole cast of characters at the Moulin Rouge that fill various roles. So the Duke is the stepmother. Okay. Nini Legs in the Air is both stepsisters. Harold Ziedler is the king, because he's kind of her father, sort of a father figure to her, and also plays this sort of like, you can't marry him, you can't be with him because there are rules sort of thing. Like, that's his vibe. Okay. And he's like a force. It's it's a Cinderella where the period between the ball and the happy ending is much, much longer. Because Definitely. there's a lot more... Um, complications and things getting in their way. As Avril Lavigne once said, why do you have to go and make things so complicated? And she wrote that song about Baz Luhrmann. Yes. Um, And the thing that I think clinches it is the shoes. Okay. Which for me is the secret song that they write for each other. So in Moulin Rouge, they're putting on a show together Hmm. and they write a secret song together. He writes a song for her that he puts in the show, which is their like secret declaration of love to each other. That's your song, right? Yeah, the song is called Your Song. Is it? It's Mama number five. So the song is called Come What May. And the reason that I think it's the shoes is that it becomes a symbol of their love. And it's the way that they find their way back to each other. Because it seems like they've broken up. Mm -hmm. And Christian is leaving. He's leaving the theater. After creating a, a scene, which Cinderella does not usually, but you know. Well, she's a bad Cinderella. Bad Cinderella. Making a scene. That's what Angelo Debra's Cinderella is based on. <laughs> Moulin uh, Rouge and the Glass Slipper. Yes. So he's leaving and she sings the song. She offers him the shoe, so to speak. Mm. And he returns it and they live happily ever after right no. then and there. <laughs> no, that's not what happens. I think this is Cinderella as long as you like turn off the movie two minutes before the ending. <laughs> they do the show triumphantly. The curtain comes down and that's the end of the movie. Yeah. That's where it ends. Yeah. Totally. That's where my version of it no ends. No one dies. No one dies. I mean, that's the question, right? Like, is it a, can it be a Cinderella story if the prince, in this case, dies soon after? I mean, in some ways, it's the best case scenario in a Cinderella story. <laughs> because then she like becomes queen. And she doesn't have to worry about, like, having the prince running around. Obviously, it's very tragic in the context of Moulin Rouge. You know, I'd give it to you up until the prince dying. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I really think you need to cut those two minutes out of the movie in order to make it a Cinderella story. Because after that, it's just not. Cinderella, but a high tragedy. Right. Yeah, I, I think that was my point from before. I don't think you can do a Cinderella with a tragic ending. I think the point is that there's this wish fulfillment, happily ever after thing. No one's happy at the end. So in my re-edited version of Moulin Rouge, though. Your re-edited version, yes, it's a Cinderella story. But the OG, I'm a little more like, ah. And then obviously the like element of transformation part of it is that Christian is a penniless writer. Um, and he gets 
a big writing job <laughs> over right. the course of the show. He gets to produce this lavish Bollywood-inspired musical. Because why? Because we can, can, can. Well, I think that sound <laughs> of a clock chiming midnight means it's time to wrap up this episode of If the Shoe Fits. Please join us again in two weeks' time for a new perspective on the Cinderella story. Hmm, a new perspective. Bye-bye. Goodbye. Bye now. Bye. Goodbye. Bye-bye. Au revoir. 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 Au revoir.